Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. Today, uh, we are with Dr. Jonathan Tran talking about race, racism, and Christianity. In this episode, Dr. Tran will examine Christianity's morally disastrous complicity with American racism and more. Discussing his recent book, Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism. Jonathan develops his arguments in favor of an approach that views racial identity as the function of a particular political economy, what is called racial capitalism, and therefore analytically subordinates racial identity to political economy. We'll talk about that later. After these complex questions and more, the lingering question begs to be asked, does the Christian church have anything left to offer? Jonathan Tran holds the George W. Baines Chair of Religion at Baylor University, Sikkim. His research focuses on linguistic theology, theology and ethics, and critical theory. And his most recent book, as stated earlier, is Asian Americans and the Spirit of Racial Capitalism with Oxford University Press. We may be able to get you a discount code later. If I get the wink and the approval, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, so, Jonathan, great to have you on the Brew Theology Podcast. Uh, this is, uh, yeah, this is going to be fun, and, and uh, we can dive into some nerdy stuff. But uh, what we always like to do with all of our guests and our people that gather around the table is to get personal, uh, as this is a, a ground-up kind of a community of communities. So uh, we'd love to hear your religious background, spiritual pedigree, where you came from, and how you would identify uh, yourself these days, if anything. Um, particular or, or, uh, yeah, or, or, you know, perhaps you, you're the same old, same all your whole life. We've had people like that before. They've never changed their, their positions. <laughs> well, thanks for having me on Brew Theology. I'm a big fan of what y'all do and the idea of kind of local communities gathering, uh, at all. Um, and then organizing, uh, through local politics or thinking about important questions and topics, I think is, uh, critically important. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm definitely not one of those people that has never changed. I think I'm changing uh, constantly. So trying to track those changes is, is half the battle, I find. So I grew up outside of Christianity uh, and so came to America in the mid-1970s after the Vietnam War. Our, fam- our family uh, was a war refugee family, like the many that came to America uh, there was a uh, movement in the U.S. where U.S. churches played a significant part in kind of um, patriating uh, Vietnamese war refugee families to America. And so large denominations, um, uh, uh, you know, Methodists, Lutherans, uh, Presbyterians, and then, you know, Roman Catholicism, uh, would adopt these families. And so that was true for my family. We were adopted by a Lutheran church. And so we attended a Lutheran church for maybe the first year and a half of our time in America. And, and I didn't become a Christian out of that, but I do remember the very significant witness of their kindness and hospitality. I did become Christian later on, really in the beginning years of uh, college, university. I went to the University of California, Riverside. Uh, and that was hugely important, uh, partly uh, because the Christianity I was adopted into, uh, there was never a question in that Christianity whether you're going to take the stuff seriously. <laughs> so if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to you know, try to take up all these kinds of 
demands and promises of the Christian gospel. And so it was a lot of stuff around social justice, uh, accountability, issues of holiness, um, kind of relational honesty and healthiness and these kinds of things. So I never um, kind of got the easygoing Christianity, uh, at least in the beginning. And so that's always been the bar for me. Um, always the recognition that God calls people to a lot, uh, but God also enables them to be faithful. And so um, these days, I mean, you know, now 30 years down the road, um, I don't know how I would understand myself. I'm not sure I would call myself an evangelical just because that term is so broad. I'm not sure if it names so much. I mean, at this point in American life, it names everything from kind of a resurgence of kind of white nationalism in America um, to, you know, very progressive liberal folks. So I don't know where I fall in all that. I rather just think of myself as trying to figure out what it means to be Christian and try to have a, a family life and a work life that reflects something of that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Uh, it's, it, it's getting more difficult to, because if you do tell somebody, well, I'm this, then you got to define all those terms too. And it gets, uh, even the word, I think a lot of people dropped evangelical years ago because they're like, well, I don't have like an hour long conversation with somebody to describe right. what that means anymore. <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I don't think I define myself really as evangelical, but I wouldn't put myself in this kind of ex evangelical circle especially with some of the kind of common ways of talking about christianity when you when you've been raised in evangelicalism and then you've left it which is a kind of maybe a divorce narrative about how just evil it is um mm-hmm. kind of justify your way on the your, yourself on the way out i don't do that either because uh, i think it, it has its own kinds of problems um you know, and, and I think if Jesus taught us anything, Jesus taught us to be pretty careful about self-righteousness. And there's a kind of self-righteousness, a kind of virtue signaling that often comes with this ex-evangelical uh, conversation. Yeah, that's, uh, we, we've, I feel like we've had these kind of conversations before with even just like, you can't, have, you can't be an atheist without being a theist and you can't be, and then you have like the Democrat Republican. It's kind of like, well, you're, it's kind of now the ex-evangelical is, it, it, it's almost like a new fundamentalism in a way. It's just the other side of the coin. But to be uh, to get back to being more generous, that's that's a good reminder too. Um, I have to remind. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting. It. I mean, it's interesting. The ex-evangelicals are often evangelical in their ex-evangelicalness. Yeah, that is the the various problems that they worry about uh, in terms of uh, rejecting evangelicalism is the kind of spirit of their rejection, and so it's not quite clear that they're doing much other than being evangelicals in it in, in precisely the way they complain about. So I'm not sure I want to do that either. So your way of putting it's helpful. Well, um, as we jump into, you know, this kind of very poignant and important topic of race in America, um, maybe it'd be good to start by defining some terms. Ryan had put together like a list of five. So, I, I mean, do you want them all at once or do you want to just do them one at a time? I'll, I'll try to start maybe with a bunch of them. And then, um, you know, when I get too long, too long winded, just feel free to cut me off. <laughs> well, he had uh, he had put out here race, ethnicity, anti-racism, identif- identity politics and critical race theory. So is that a good starting ground? 
Sure. Why don't I start with the rest and, uh, and then ask me later more about critical race. Okay. Something I've thought I'll, I've been thinking more about recently. So maybe the, the way to begin is to take standard or orthodox definitions and then try to contrast that with how I'm trying to uh, think differently about the same terms. So yeah. I think when, when most Americans, and I think this certainly includes most American Christians, when most folks think about racism, what they, matter, what they imagine is something largely individual mm-hmm. or personalistic. So racism is me having racist beliefs about others. And the substance of these beliefs are things like stereotypes or thinking badly or having misconstrued or poorly informed uh, notions of other people. So maybe you think, you know, X group of colored people are lazy or they're mm-hmm. more criminal, or you think Asian Americans or Asians are viruses or what have you. Um, and these are largely personal beliefs that are informed by, you know, bad information kind of thing. Uh, the problem with this kind of behavior, this kind of person, is then they start acting out towards others. Uh, from their personalistic racism. Uh, and then the, the worser problem maybe is that sometimes it leads to the level of structures and systems. So let's say you have bad beliefs about other people and then it carries forth in the type of hiring that you, you and your company do. Uh, and so this is your racism institutionalized as, it, mm-hmm. as such. This, this vision or this view of racism also comes with its own form of anti-racism, right? So if racism is individual, then, then how you correct racism, anti-racism, is to correct individual beliefs. You get people to think better. Uh, you th- you, if they're thinking badly about other people, you get them to think well. And, and, and whereas they may fear difference, then you try to institute diversity programs to help them feel better about difference, whether it be different races or different, uh, maybe a gender that's not your own or about people from other parts of the world coming to America. And and that's, you know, when I say this is the orthodox view, it's orthodox both that people believe this and that we've instituted this form of anti-racism through diversity trainings, you know, what's often called DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And this is true at, say, almost every company in America, or at least every Fortune 500 company. It's certainly true across the academy. Every university and college has these programs and initiatives. And then uh, almost all religious institutions have some form of diversity training at this point. So what I try to say is that this is an entirely too convenient way of thinking about racism. Um, the idea that racism is primarily about individuals and their personal beliefs that, that need to be corrected through institutional measures like diversity initiatives um, is entirely too convenient. It, and its convenience can be seen in terms of the kinds of virtue signaling that play out. You'll, you'll see these kinds of little melodramas uh, where some person is found to be racist somehow. Maybe they found some kind of email or text or tweet that they put out, which then identifies this internal racism that's internal to them. And then the virtue signaling is the collective shaming and shunning of this individual. Uh, and to, with the idea being that, thank goodness, we found and identified this person because otherwise their individual racism would have gotten out there. It would be, become vir- virulent, right? It would have become like a virus as it moves from them individually to how they treat others, to institutions, et cetera, et cetera. 
why that's virtue signaling is that that allows each of us to get in on the act uh, and suggest that racism is somewhere out there. Um, and, and, you know, and, and this kind of virtue signaling with its attending cancel culture um, makes us all feel pretty good because the racist is always someone else other than us. My view of racism is almost um, inversely directed. It's the opposite of that, right? In, in my account, racism is not sometimes institutional. It's not sometimes rising to the level of systems and structures. It's always institutional. It's always systemic and structural. In my account, racism is a mode of life in which you have a world of dispiriting, dehumanizing, appalling inequality. Um, and the inequality are material forms of inequality. So we're thinking about things like employment, wages, who has access to decent health care, who gets to go to the good schools. Uh, this, is, this is true in America, and it's true everywhere in the world. And so you have these appalling forms of material inequality, exploitation, domination, oppression. What race does in this story is it, it, is it allows or provides ideology. It gives you a reason to explain away and feel better about the inequality. Why? Because you use someone's race to gaslight them for the oppression that they themselves are experiencing. So you can imagine in Denver or in Waco, uh, some part of our cities uh, where you go and you see that there's you know, dilapidated housing, a lack of investment on the part of the city, uh, poor healthcare access, uh, schools that are perpetually um, dealing with kind of almost chronic or pathological uh, lack of resources. And so instead of stepping back and saying, how have we organized our society that there are incredibly wealthy resource people and there's some people who generationally can't seem to get a foot up in life. And instead of asking that question and then therefore the following questions about how we might reorganize, redistribute, we say, oh, it's them. It's who they are. It's natural to them. It's their race. That's what race is. That's what race was created to be in American life. There is well-documented history uh, in the Americas, in Europe, uh, continuously throughout the world where race is a fiction created to give these systems of domination and equality a veneer of respectability uh, by laying blame um, on the very people suffering the oppressions. I describe it as the ultimate gaslighting maneuver. Um, over time, this mode of justification works so well, we actually think race names some quality about persons that can explain stuff. Um, and so we say something like, well, she does it because she's X, or, mm -hmm. oh, those people do that because they're Y. Race is used to empirically explain things, like it has this explanatory power, even though it's a fiction, it's a ruse of power. Uh, it's what um, critics of modes of economic and political domination call ideology. It's just justification. So you can see how this is like, you know, um, the very opposite of the kind of overly convenient account. In this account, very few of us escape complicity 
because then those who com- are complicit in this system of justified domination and exploitation, what I call racial capitalism, many of us participate in these systems. We perpetuate them insofar as we benefit from them. Whether we're directly exploiting these inequalities and exploitations, ex- opportunities for exploitation, or we're indirectly benefiting from them, right? And, and I can go into quite a bit of detail about examples of how, how we do those things. But you can see it's a very different account um, of racism. And in this account, DEI does very, diversity, equity, inclusion, training does very little. Uh, in fact, it's a, it's largely a distraction from the structures and systems because you DEI do. largely tries to get us to be nicer to each other while maintaining the structures and systems of inequality. In that sense, it's not simply a distraction. It's what um, some people call class warfare by other means. I'm curious, in your opinion, do you, if you said it, it does very little, in fact, it um, it distracts us from what's really important, the thesis of what you're aiming at here. Is there a starting point? Is there a way? I mean, do you think there's any kind of merit in saying at least it gets people to sort of self-examine individually and then potentially move them to this deeper rooted level of, of like, it's always been this way, but, but we've used race um, within a class battle. Um, is it, or, or, I mean, or I mean, do we throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, um, in this? Because I remember this kind of training, you know, I don't remember if you, you do. I mean, in seminary, we had, in orientation, we, we had these kinds of trainings. It was, and it's exactly what you're saying. And it kind of like, oh, yeah, oh, I do think this way about about this, you know, type of person. I do think this way about this. And then um, let's look at each other. And it was very much of a kumbaya kind of a moment before we, w- we would dig into our studies. Is it helpful at all? Yeah, empirically, it hasn't been. I okay. mean, we we all, this this is the waters we all swim in now just like the experiences you just mentioned. I mean, I've had many, and most of us have had those experiences across institutions. So DEI or diversity training is about 50 years old. Most of us don't remember that because most of us aren't that old. Uh, But diversity training of some kind began in the U.S. and in the U.K. in the 1960s um, as the government sought to desegregate, you know, in the U.S. context, desegregate the country. And so part of what the federal government then required is these kinds of diversity trainings. Now, there's an interesting history there, because in the beginning, the the idea was exactly what you thought, that there would be a kind of trickle-down or trickle-up effect. If we thought better about one another, then we would naturally begin to think about institutions and systems and society uh, this is, at least is kind of the vision of a Robin DiAngelo of, you know, white fragility fame, uh, who is a, you know, got her start in diversity training. She's a diversity training expert. And in her book, she talks about these experiences, but she talks about these, she has an image of a pier where the pilings of the pier hook into the earth. The idea is you work on the surface of these DEI things, maybe you'll get down to the pilings and deal with the real structural issues undergirding them. But the reality is you, they haven't. Uh, I mean, studies of diversity training, and, and, the, and there's some pretty well-known ones, the studies of how diversity training works out longitudinally is that not only do they not make places more diverse, they make them less diverse, right? They're counterproductive. Uh, they show about a 10% decrease in diversity. So uh, uh, even on their own terms, they don't make places more diverse. 
But then to the larger question is beyond whether they make these places diverse, do they actually structurally systemically change anything or do they actually make them worse, right? Because let's say you have a company like Google and they do diversity training, which they do. Now, what the problem is, let's say it worked, which again, it doesn't really work, but let's say it did work. The effect of it is that you would just make Google more diverse, but what is Google, right? Google is an elite institution um, that controls a large amount of wealth and sustains the systems of inequality. And and this is true about universities as well. Universities and colleges are obviously competitive elite spaces. The thinking that somehow if you make these places more diverse, they will somehow ramify to the rest of society um, is just evidentially not there. We want to believe that kind of thing, uh, the kind of thing you just raised, but it just doesn't tend to work. A, they don't get more diverse, and B, even if they do, they don't have anything to do with the larger structure and system. And, and that has to do with the, it, with the larger history that DEI grew up in over the last 50 years. And, and if you want to hear more, I can say a little bit more about that as well. well I, I'm also curious, too, because, I mean, you work at Baylor Private School, and we I went there. The, the tuition's crazy. Crazy. Uh, the pe- people that go there is a certain kind of, you know, people that get to get to go there based on just the, the, the dollar amounts, but, he, but that's any institution that writes any university public schools now are, I think as university of Texas is as much now as Baylor was when I was at Baylor. Um, so it's getting, how did, how, when you talk about this with the, the powers that be, or they hear your research, are they like, man, Jonathan, shut up. <laughs> You, know, you can't talk about it. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I just went on a, um, you know, the, this book is taking me on quite a bit of a book tour. So I just uh, visited a bunch of Northeast, you know, pretty elite, well, probably the most elite universities in our country. Uh, and these places are rife with DEI diversity language. And I think any of us that, and I imagine that this is especially true of DEI professionals, I think all of us realize there are extraordinary limits to this discourse and set of practices. Um, And I think those of us who have been involved in diversity at our institutions feel like we're perpetually banging our head against a wall. I think the difficulty is in the midst of recognizing there are obvious kinds of problems, um, not having quite the bandwidth to step back and ask, well, why do we keep on doing this? I mean, So, for example, when I said earlier that the evidence suggests that most diversity training is actually counterproductive, right? And and, and it's counterproductive for any of the ways you might expect if you study institutional behavior, or even if you're an armchair psychologist. It's the obvious fact that if you start with a group of people and you say to them, you're racist and sexist, you're the problem, but we're also going to ask you to lead us to change that approach usually doesn't work. Uh, that's just armchair psychology. It's what the Harvard psychologist Mona Sue Weismark um, calls the preemptive double pejorative. It just doesn't work by telling people that they're bad and that they need to change for everyone in society to change. Um, you may be completely correct in saying that they're racist and sexist, but starting off there is starting off on the wrong foot. Thanks so much for listening to the Brew Theology Podcast. We're so glad you tuned in for episode one of our interview with Dr. Jonathan Tran. We'll be bringing you the rest shortly as we continue our discussion on DEI and the way we talk about race in America. 
if you want to find Brew Theology online, you can find us at brewtheology.org, at Brew Theology on Instagram and Facebook, and at Brew underscore Theology on Twitter, if it still exists by the time you hear this episode. Thanks so much, and we'll talk to you soon. Cheers.